The British Army postal system of the Great War was the communications superhighway that linked the soldier on the battlefield with his family at home. It was such a vital part of a soldier's experience that at one point something like 12 million letters a week were being sent. So what's the story of those letters from the trenches? During the Great War, millions of men and women served in the British and Commonwealth forces on the Western Front. In a world before mobile phones and email and WhatsApp, this was a generation that still needed to be connected to home. And for them, it was through the written letter. At its peak, something like 12 million letters a week were being delivered to those on the battlefield. A vital link for them to family and friends, and an essential factor in the morale of those away on active service. We often speak about layers of the Great War on this podcast, and the postal history is certainly one of them. And more than a century later, we find much evidence of it through surviving letters, in collections, at auctions, online, and in many family papers, as well as filled postcards, green envelopes, and so much more. But how did it all work? And who was responsible for all those letters to and from the trenches? That's what we'll hope to answer in this podcast. When we look at the history of the postal services in the Great War, we need to look at the post office, really, on the eve of that war. In 1914, the General Post Office, or GPO as it was then called, employed a quarter of a million people, with a revenue of over £32 million in old money, a staggering amount of funds. That made it the largest enterprise in Britain at that time, and the biggest single employer in the world. There was an importance to the post whether it's letters or postcards, in that period of Edwardian Britain. This was a principal way in which people communicated with each other. And because of the frequency of the post at that time, you were ensured a regular contact with somebody. And it really became part of people's lives, particularly with postcards. The Edwardian period was a, a period of picture postcards, when photographers went out and photographed streets and churches and towns and villages, when all sorts of imagery was put onto postcards and people collected those and they used them to send messages to family and friends and their wider social circle. So really that kind of decade or so between the Boer War and the Great War saw an explosion of the use of posts in many ways, and different methods by which people could communicate through that post. It wasn't just sitting down and writing out a long letter. You could just write a short thing on a postcard and send that through. And you see that kind of trickle into the period of the Great War. And as we've said, with the frequency of the post, there were two posts a day, it was used by a huge number of people. And in 1914 alone, there were 5.9 billion items of post. So this was very much cemented into the mindsets and into the lives 
of that generation of 1914. So when a war began as it did at that time, soldiers who would be employed onto the battlefield, sent to barracks at home, they would all want to make use of that generation's way of communicating via letters. And the army obviously had to react to this, especially in terms of active service, when soldiers on home garrisons could use the normal post to communicate. Once they're overseas, that wouldn't be possible. So in 1913, the army formed the Royal Engineer Postal Section, often called REPS, R-E-P-S. This was part of the Special Reserve and was under the command of Colonel William Price, CMGVD, who was the Assistant Director of Postal Services. Initially, it was pretty small. It only consisted of 10 officers and 290 other ranks, ordinary soldiers, and it was tasked with forming a postal system for a projected future British expeditionary force with up to six infantry divisions, each of about 20,000 men. That was what they began to look into when the plans for an expeditionary force were put together in the years before the Great War. That plan was already there and was then put into place when the war broke out in August 1914. And part of that plan was to look at the postal arrangements for those troops. The majority of the men were existing postal workers, those that were in this Royal Engineers postal section, the reps, thus the Special Reserve. Now, the Special Reserve was a branch of military service which did not require you to be a full-time soldier. You could register for military service, you'd be given your basic kind of training in the role that you were going to do in terms of the military side of it, but these men were going to employ skills that had been developed in civilian life while working for the general post office and being in the special reserve they could continue to be GPO workers and then would be called up by the army as and when required in time of war and of course that time of war came with the outbreak of war from a British perspective and empire commonwealth perspective on the 4th of August 1914. But that plan that they developed and, and what was eventually put into place in that early month of the war was the proposal to form the following units which would be deployed overseas in time of conflict. There would be one main base post office, BPO, one advanced base post office, two stationary post offices, and then for each division that would be employed within that expeditionary force, there would be three field post offices at different levels of those formations. And this network of post offices from a central core out to the far reaches of the battlefield would both send posts to those men and then receive posts from those men and send it back to home, back to Britain. The reps went to France in August 1914 and as the routes across then in that early phase of the war was largely via Southampton to Le Havre, the base post office was set up at Le Havre itself, the advanced base post office at Amiens, and the stationary post offices at Boulogne. And again, this immediately using these key locations, so you've got a port, Le Havre, with good rail links, and then inland you've got Amiens, which sat at a main rail junction, and Amiens would remain vitally important to the Allied railway supply route for the rest of the Great War, which is why in 1918 the Germans were very keen to overrun it. 
But from Amiens, you go up into northern France and off to eastern France and down towards Paris. And then with Boulogne, you had a secondary route potentially to get mail to and from across the Channel. So this set up a kind of structure. And the whole history of this Royal Engineer Postal Section is a fascinating subject. And a good website to glean more information about this is Chris Baker's Long, Long Trail. And I'll put a link to the page relating to the history of this unit onto the podcast website. From the very beginning, London became the beating heart of the Army postal system. Its headquarters was at Regent's Park, and all letters to troops were sent from there. By 1918, a facility which had just had a few rooms initially was expanded to five acres of buildings and had dealt with two billion letters during the war and 114 million parcels, a staggering amount of posts which reflects the growing size of the British Armed Forces during that Great War period. But in this early stage of the conflict, soldiers were at that point required to pay for the letters that they sent home. So when they were on active service, they had to pay for the post, just as those sending them back home obviously had to pay to send to men on active service. This amount was subsidised to a penny when it was usually tuppence to send a letter back to Britain from overseas. But fairly quickly into the conflict, the Postmaster General decided that this was unfair to the men who were risking their all on active service. So he decided that all posts from those who were overseas would now be free to the servicemen and women concerned. And that meant they never had to have any money to contribute towards sending a letter back home. If they wanted to write to their mother, their brother, their sister, their father, their uncle, their sons and their daughters, whoever it was, it didn't cost them anything because the benefits from a morale point of view to enable soldiers to be able to contact and speak to and link back to their family like that was vitally important, something that continues within the forces in different mediums, of course, to this day. Once items were received at that London depot, if you like, they were dispatched to Southampton, again because of that route across that the bulk of the British forces were using in that early phase of the war. So they were dispatched to Southampton and then by ship to Le Havre and then onwards to the base post office. Here they were sorted and then sent on to Amiens, that key rail junction, and then there they were shipped to the divisional railheads of the British Expeditionary Force. The motor transport units of the Army Service Corps, which were the units within each division that was responsible for resupply, and we've looked at that in some previous podcasts on feeding the British soldier in the Great War, those units were the ones who took on the responsibility to carry that post to the forward position so it would reach the actual soldiers it was intended for. And when it got to the field post offices, After that, it was by hand up to the forward battlefield positions and then they would be distributed to individual units, later by what were called post-corporals. These men would be the ones handing out the post from home to those within their unit. Posts then went back, so back home from the soldiers at the front line, back to their families via the same routes back via the field post office, back to Amiens, back up to the coast, and then back Southampton to London. 
But the war of movement that the war of 1914 was, that war that everyone had prepared for before the Great War, which was put into play with mobile battles and sweeping flanks and open fields, that took the expeditionary force over a wide area, over 200 miles from Mons down to the Marne and the fighting on the Aisne, and then they moved in October 1914 up to northern France. The movement of all those troops, not a static front at that point, posed great challenges to the reps, to the Royal Engineers postal section and their ability to keep up with the movement of the post so it caught up with the men on the ground. However, as the autumn moved into the winter, this was now the Great War was becoming a static war and that made the deployment of post, the movement of post and the collection of post to take back to Britain much easier. It was much easier essentially to send and receive. But the first Christmas of the war further stretched the postal personnel who were available and the resources that they had when the amount of post in the lead up to that first Christmas on active service increased by an incredible 90% and the staffs of the Royal Engineer Postal Section increased themselves now to 1,500 officers and men and they were given an additional 44 lorries to assist in the movement and delivery of the post in the field. The speed of postal delivery, even in this early period of the war, could often be quite staggering compared to modern times now. And in the Burgoyne Diaries, which is one of those Great War memoirs that I recommended at one of our podcast supporters evening, he was an officer in the Irish Rifles, and he served in Flanders in the 1914-15 period. And that book, The Burgoyne Diaries, which has now been reprinted, is a really good account of that period of the war. And in part of that account that he wrote, he says, referring to some of the posts that caught up with them, he said, I got three letters posted in Ireland on the 26th of December, and then in England on the 28th of December this afternoon. So letters are reaching us as quickly as if there was no war. It is really rather wonderful. So letters were arriving at these men on active service only a few days after having been posted in the towns and cities and villages where they came from. As it was clear that the war would remain, almost certainly remain static once the Western Front, those 450 miles of trenches, had been formed during that first winter of the war in 1914-15, And it was clear that the size of the army was growing with the deployment of the regular forces and then the arrival of territorials and then eventually Kitchener's army, the new army, as the war progressed. It was clear with all of this that there would be more and more postal demands on the Royal Engineer Postal Section. So in 1915, there was some rearrangement of the postal system on the Western Front. The base post office was moved to Boulogne so that mail could now be brought from London to Folkestone. The route from Southampton to Le Havre was not as popular, not as well used in that next period of the war. And it seemed more logical to move post a shorter distance from London to Folkestone and then that short hop across the channel from Folkestone to Boulogne. But that didn't mean that Le Havre wasn't used. It was just used for parcels. They decided to split the types of posts that were used. So letters and postcards and small posts, that went from Folkestone to Boulogne and the parcels went to Le Havre and they would be dealt with from there. 
They also worked on the delivery time of all mail, which was, as we've said, remarkably quick. But they managed to reduce that even more by about 36 hours in delivery time, meaning that in some cases, it is recorded, officers at headquarters, for example, could get newspapers published in London that morning, sent over, and they would be reading them the same day. Quite incredible, really. Postal lorries came into use as well, and these operated in the motor transport sections of the Army Service Corps supply columns, as we've said, but now rather than put the post in with the bully beef or the, the rum jars or whatever it was, they would have separate lorries now just for the post, and these would then proceed towards the forward area of the battlefield to send that to the field post offices so it could be sent to the men in the very front line, in the trenches that had now been dug across the landscape of the Western Front. As the war looked as if it was going to stay locked on the Western Front, improvements in the postal system continued. It was said that letters by this stage that arrived at the London depot in the morning would be at brigade headquarters in France by 7pm the same day. So again, an incredible swiftness of delivery. The railways, of course, were a key feature in all of this. We've often spoke about the whole idea of war by timetable, the employment of railways in the Great War, and as well as the movement of men and supplies and ammunition and everything else, they were used to move the post from the very beginning, from Le Havre to Amiens and outwards. But now it was becoming even more important as the whole infrastructure behind the Western Front was built upon. Britain, as we've said many times on this podcast, built on that infrastructure from the very beginning and continuously expanded it throughout the war. By 1916, the system was working at top proficiency, and a stationary post office, for example, could handle around 30,000 letters a day. This reflects the size of the army too, because more and more men being recruited in the initial stage through volunteers, then being employed onto the battlefield, that would mean more and more men would want to send and receive posts. So the whole kind of infrastructure had to be there to cope with his ever-expanding demands on the postal service. By the end of the Battle of the Somme in 1916, with the first conscripts arriving on the front line and the size of the army growing again, something like 10 million letters from home were being delivered in France each week, even at that stage, halfway through the war. Going back the other way, 5 million letters and postcards and 1 million parcels were being sent each week by Tommies in the trenches. This was reflected also in the growing size of that London postal depot, which expanded greatly throughout the rest of the war, and had, by 1918, for example, over 2,000 women working within that depot. So it changed the whole kind of concept of the way post within the army, within the armed services, was used and delivered and received, but also the whole nature of who did that work changed with the employment of women in that final phase of the Great War, reflecting so many other aspects of the conflict in terms of the service and deployment of women in, in so many key positions in that road to victory in 1918. If London was the beating heart of the whole system on the actual battlefield, the heart there was the field post office. But this 
wasn't a building. The field post office wasn't like a shed or a Nissan hut or a structure or an old farm building took over. It wasn't a bunker. It wasn't a dugout. What it was, the field post office, was a box with human servants, the post corporal and his staff, as described in this account of 1918. A field post office is primarily an iron box, not a building, a black heavy box under the care of a corporal and two sappers. The box holds postal orders, stamps, cash, lead seals for mail bags, rule books and scores of other items, not forgetting the red and white flag of the office. This box may be lodged anywhere, in an open field, a barn, a stable, a tent, a cellar, a dugout or a chateau. But wherever it is dropped, there is a field post office. So the whole postal system of the Great War on the Western Front was the key means in which soldiers, especially in the later citizen army of volunteers and conscripts, felt connected to the wider world and the family they had left behind. It was in effect the email network of those times, men knowing that they could get and receive post and remain in touch with those that they loved, a massive factor in the morale of those troops on the front line in those vast armies that Britain and the Commonwealth formed during those four years of the conflict. So we've looked at some of the history of this. What were the types of post that soldiers could send and receive during the Great War? And what were the restrictions? When we look at what soldiers actually sent from the trenches of the Great War, from the trenches of the Western Front, for example, letters were the main type of post. That was the kind of post that most were used to sending. And although we kind of think over a 100 years, perhaps people were less literate than they are now, Certainly that was true to a degree, but a very high percentage of that generation were fully literate. The education reforms that happened in the decades before the Great War had created a generation in 1914 that could properly read and write. And you see that reflected, as we've seen, in the figures for the huge amount of post that was going backwards and forwards. And initially, as we've said, they had to pay for those letters to go home, but soon that was free because it was realised how important it was for a soldier to be able to feel that in that alien landscape that the Western Front eventually became, he wasn't there isolated, stranded like Robinson Crusoe on an island. He could talk to those wider members of his family, his close kith and kin, and anybody that he felt like through being able to write a letter at no cost to himself. And if you're a simple Tommy in the PBI, the poor bloody infantry, on a shilling a day, the fact that you didn't have to pay for your post was great bonus to you, really. But where did soldiers get the paper to write these letters? Well, family could send them writing pads and writing paper to write their letters back home. But once they were out on the battlefield, and not so obviously so much in the trenches, but out of the line in the villages and towns behind the front and at the camps, the base camps, either at Rouen or later in the war at Etarpla, there were lots of facilities there where they could go and get paper to write letters. So YMCA huts, church army huts, and then in places like Poppering or at Talbot House, one of the things that they offered there 
was free paper so that soldiers could sit down and write a letter and they'd give them an envelope and then that could go into the army postal system. Postcards were also pretty common at that stage in the years of collecting letters and postal marks and postcards of the Great War. I've got quite a lot of, for example, again, YMCA postcards. They seem to have given those out at the base and soldiers could tuck a load in their pocket and write a message home and then get that sent off as well. So it wasn't just letters, it was postcards as well. What could they say in these letters when they were writing home? What kind of things could they say? Were there any restrictions? Most of the examples of letters that I've got, they're not great accounts of the war. It's often personal stuff, family stuff. How are you? I'm doing okay. Many of the letters kind of hide the reality of the sort of experiences that these men were having. And what's clear in the early phase of the war there appears to have been fairly little censorship of the post. And I say that with some surety because having gone through newspapers, particularly in Sussex when I was doing research on the Royal Sussex Regiment, the early war papers of 1914 on into the first half of 1915, the letters that are published in the newspaper of men on active service are very detailed. They mention the circumstances of battle, the detail of battle. They mention names and units and places in a way that you don't see in the next phase of the conflict. They tightened up on that kind of thing because I suspect they realised that they could inadvertently through these letters be releasing information that could be useful to the enemy. So censorship came in. Some men always found a way bypassing that censorship of course so one of the postcards that I've got in my collection the card is worth nothing it's a pre-war postcard of the Palace of Justice the Courts of Justice at Ypres not a particularly interesting building it's a nice looking building it's rebuilt in the main square on exactly the same design today but this postcard shows the original building and it was sent by a soldier during the first battle of Ypres in 1914 while the fighting's going on along the Menin Road beyond Hillfire Corner up towards Hoog and Gellervelt and all those kind of places and rather than send a message to his family via the army postal system he went into Ypres, bought a postcard in a shop because Ypres still had the civilian population living in it in 1914. He bought a postcard, went to the post office, he got a stamp He wrote out his parents' address, wrote a little message on there, told them where he was, and he popped it in the post, and it went from Belgium back home to Britain. So that was a way of doing it. Now, later in the war, I know that wasn't possible. Soldiers were not allowed to put things into the local post, and I think there was some kind of agreement that stopped posts like that going back to Britain so that soldiers couldn't circumvent the censorship system. But censorship was introduced and field service regulations stated that no reference was to be made, and I quote, to plans of future operations, whether rumoured, surmised or known, to organisation, numbers and movements of troops, to the armament of troops or fortresses, to defensive works, to the morale or physical condition of the troops, to casualties previous to the publication of official lists, to the service of maintenance, or in the case the writer is one of the garrison of a besieged fortress, to the effects of hostile fire. Criticism of operations is forbidden, as are statements calculated to bring the army or individuals into disrepute. 
So a kind of framework of what these men could write about was put into print and was put into effect as well. So who did this censorship? Now, an infantry platoon of about 40-odd men at full strength was commanded by a young second lieutenant or a lieutenant, and it was their responsibility to censor their men's mail. So the men wrote their letters, didn't seal the envelope and handed it in, and the officer was required to sit in his tent behind the lines, sit in his dugout up in the forward zone, and go through these letters to make sure they weren't saying, hi mum, you know, the Somme is going to start tomorrow, and we're going to attack at La Boiselle. So that's what they were looking for when it came to them censoring these things. And they censored it in different ways. Sometimes if the men did say something, the officer could strike it out with a pencil or a pen, I've seen examples where they've cut sections of letters out and you kind of hold this thing up and it's got big holes in it. And it was their job to make sure that no vital information leaked through these letters. Now, when I was interviewing Great War veterans back in the 1980s and 90s, I interviewed a lot of men who were officers and I've spoken about some of them on this podcast And one that immediately comes to mind is James Leslie Lovegrove, Smiler Lovegrove. He was an officer in the 2nd 4th South Lancashires, and he was only 18 years old, a subaltern. He looks about 12 in his photographs. He's very young, kind of very thin, not very physically strong. I think I mentioned before that when he fired his revolver for the first time, the recoil was so strong, and he was so kind of fragile, really, that as soon as he pulled the trigger, he fell over. Now, when it came to him censoring his men's mail, and this was in the latter part of the conflict in 1917-18, and he had a lot of quite older men in his unit, late 20s into their 30s, married men with wives, and he, you know, to be frank, was an 18-year-old virgin. He was reading love letters, which often got a bit fruity from what he said, back home to the wives and girlfriends and whoever, And he really didn't like this. He was a devout Christian. He didn't like reading these things. He didn't like imposing on the privacy of the men that he commanded. And it was something he said that really did not appeal to him in any shape or form. And he wasn't alone in that. Many, many officers felt this way. They didn't like that they had this kind of peek into their men's lives And they thought it was a bit of an imposition, really. And the men didn't like it either, knowing that whatever they wrote, the officer would have to cast his eyes over it. And once the censorship was done by officers like Lovegrove, they had a little stamp. They would stamp the postcard or stamp the letter, and then they would sign over the top of it, saying that they had decreed it worthy of being sent and it wasn't giving away these top secrets that the army feared that this kind of post would So the reluctance of officers to do this kind of censorship and the men fearful of their private thoughts being read by their commander led to the introduction of the green envelope partway into the war. Officially, Army Form W3078, an active service envelope. And I'm sitting here with an example of one of these green envelopes in front of me now this one was sent from Salonica he's actually written Macedonia Christmas Day 1916 he wrote that subsequently on this this is from a collection of letters that I have to Ted Davies who served with the 2nd 18th London Regiment London Irish Rifles he was from Camden Town and with it is his brother's collection of letters his brother died 
uh, of wounds received on the Somme in 1916. Ted went right through the war and served in France, Salonika, and then Palestine. So looking at this envelope in front of me, it's a kind of six by four envelope. It says active service in green print, a big kind of green cross on it. And then on one side, it says Army Form W3078. And then beneath it, it gives the instructions to the soldiers so they know how this envelope would be used. It says this envelope must not be used for coin or valuables. It cannot be accepted for registration. Note, correspondence in this envelope need not be censored regimentally. The contents are liable to examination at the base. The following certificate must be signed by the writer. I certify on my honour that the contents of this envelope refer to nothing but private and family matters. Signature, name only. And Ted has signed that on the bottom. On the other side, where you put the address, it says a further note. Several letters may be forwarded in this cover but these must be all from the same writer. So you couldn't put multiple person's letters into one envelope. It always had to be from the same person. Now I'll put an image of this onto the podcast website so you can see what one of these look like. The letter inside doesn't really kind of say very much. It's more kind of family news, but I guess it's the sort of thing that he didn't really want his officer to, to read. So this became very, very popular. And as the envelope says, it could be checked at the base. I think a small percentage were checked. And if a soldier was found to have written military details in a letter that had gone in a green envelope, then he could face court-martial. I mean, not execution, but he could face penalties for having broken his covenant, basically by signing the front of the envelope. So what you see in collections of letters from the Great War, if you've got some for a given kind of period, once these green envelopes come in, more and more soldiers actually use them. And you can see why. So that was green envelopes. And another aspect of censorship were the picture postcards that soldiers could buy behind the lines. So I'm holding a, a postcard of Popperinger, I mean, I can recognise the square. It's the Grotmarkt or the Grand Place, the main square of Popperinger. And when soldiers were out of the line in places like Pops, they could go to little shops and buy these kind of postcards. And I've got probably thousands of these at different places right across the, the Western Front and indeed beyond. Now, when this one was sent, and this was sent to an address, and you didn't have to put this in an envelope, you wrote the address on one side, you wrote your message, you handed it to your officer and then they censored it and put their censor stamp on it, and then the field post office mark went on it, and off it went via the different routes back to London and then off to wherever it was being sent to. But obviously they didn't want to have the name of the place on it. So again, you see different censorship styles here. This one, he's used an indelible pencil to go over and over and over and over the name of Popperinger, so it is no longer visible. And others, I've seen, they must have got a pen knife or something and then cut the name out. I've got a few like that. So that was another thing that was that was censored. And these were part of the kind of post that was going backwards and forwards. And I've got whole collections of these picture postcards where soldiers have gone around places behind the lines, picked them up and sent them off. Now, obviously, if they survived and come home, they knew what these different places were, but the people back home wouldn't have a clue. Now, I say that, but that wasn't always the case. So I'm holding this postcard in front of me now. I know it's Popperinger because I've seen images like this before, and obviously that view hasn't changed much 
in over 100 years of the main square of Poppering. One or two of these buildings have disappeared in, in my lifetime, been torn down and new buildings have been put up. But the main name on the postcard where it says Grand Place, Poppering has been struck out. However, the officer who's done this has not looked at this closely because at the bottom of the postcard, it's got the publisher, Sanson Van Ester Popperinger, and he hasn't struck that out. So that's kind of a Blackadder-esque moment where the officers put great pains into striking out the name of Popperinger, but not noticed that the name is repeated at the bottom of the card against the name of the postcard publisher. So those were picture postcards that were sent through the Army postal system. There were also field postcards, Army Form A2042, often called by the troops whiz-bangs. And these field postcards, field service postcards, to give them their full name, and I'm holding a, a little collection of them in my hand now, and again I'll put a picture of these on the podcast website. On one side where it says field service postcard, That's where you wrote the address. It says the address only to be written on this side. If anything else is added, the postcard will be destroyed. And then on the other side is a printed set of messages which you could then strike out as to what wasn't applicable. And the idea behind this was if you didn't have time to send a full letter but you wanted to let your next of kin, your family, your girlfriend, your mother, whatever it was, know that you were okay or what was going on, you could quickly send one of these postcards and they would get that message. So it says at the top of the postcard, nothing is to be written on this side except the date and signature of the sender. Sentences not required may be erased. If And this is underlined, if anything else is added, the postcard will be destroyed. So underneath are the different choices that you can strike out in erase. At the top it says, I am quite well. Then underneath it says, I have been admitted into hospital, sick or wounded, am going on well and hope to be discharged soon. So you struck that out as to whatever applied. I am being sent down to the base. I have received your letter dated, telegram dated, parcel dated. And then you could fill in the date in a little blank to the side of that. And then underneath it says, letter follows at first opportunity and then underneath i have received no letter from you lately for a long time whichever applied and then you signed and dated it underneath so this is a little collection sent to a family in farnham in surrey and these are from the kind of 1917-18 period and for a long time having collected these most of the ones that i had were 1916 1917 1918 and I didn't think that they had them early on in the war. But then I picked up one, and I'm holding that in my hand now, a slightly different print style on it, but one that was sent to uh, Mrs. Belcher at Willow Walk High Street in Sydenham in London. And this one is dated 23rd of October 1914. And it's a similar kind of thing, nothing to be written on this except the date and signature, etc. And then I am quite well, he says, uh, and I'm going on well. I'm being sent down to the base. Letter follows at first opportunity. I have received no letter from you lately. Signature AF Belcher, 23rd of October 1914. So that's quite an early one. So these obviously existed right at the beginning of the war. The others are printed in black. This is printed in red on the field service postcard side with a prepaid penny insignia indicating that the post was paid. That's not the same as on the later ones. And again, I'll put these onto the podcast website. Now, I'm not really a kind of postal history collector 
but in collecting Great War Ephemera, you do come across this kind of thing. And again, it makes me think of the conversations that I had with veterans all those years ago. One of the things that they told me was that these postcards were not very popular with people back home because soldiers tended to send them on the eve of a battle. Someone would come round with a load of field postcards, you're getting ready for an attack, you're loading up your gear, you're getting prepared to go over the top the next day, whatever it is, you don't have time to put your Lewis gun down and all your cleaning kit and sit there and write you know, the best letter that could ever be written. I mean, that did happen in some cases, but most men didn't have that opportunity to do that. And the postcards were a quick way of sending off one of these whiz-bangs, as the men called it, to the folks at home to tell them you were okay. And perhaps if you knew you were going over the top, you thought this could be my last chance to send them a letter. And the family's got to kind of realise this, that these influxes of filled postcards would come when big battles were on. And that didn't bring with it really for them very much good news. Because if these came, then the thought was, oh, Bill or Ted or Bert or Freddie or whoever it was, he's in the vanguard of battle now. What will happen? Will he be killed? Will he be wounded? So in some respects, the arrival of these very simple little brown postcards could cause a lot of distress to those on the home front. So we've looked at types of posts and censorship, but what actually could be sent and received and, and delivered to soldiers on the front line? Well, pretty much anything that could be posted. And again, going back to the veterans, I remember Frank Plum, who served with the 11th Suffolks. He'd been in continuous action in March and April of 1918 from the Kaiserschlacht down on the Somme and around Arras, and then had moved up to Flanders to take part in the Battle of the Lys. And finally, they had some time out of the line and they were in some huts just behind the front. They'd been much further back once, but they were a little bit nearer to the front line now, but still they were huts better than being in a trench. And the post had finally caught up with them and it had been Frank's birthday not that long before. And a tin had come from his mum with a fruitcake in it. And his last memory of being on active service was sitting there opening that tin and the smell of the fruitcake coming out, reminding him of home. He said he kind of closed his eyes and thought of his mum, and then a big shell went off outside the hut that he was sitting in, and a huge piece of shrapnel came straight through the wall and hit him in the cheek and threw him against the wall of the hut and almost killed him. But that's kind of two stories in one there, but you kind of get the idea that posts of all kinds of things would catch up with these soldiers, and they could receive almost anything. And families sent just about everything that you can think of, from food and drink to pieces of military equipment. There were a lot of companies selling uh, body shields, for example, with very thin plated kind of bulletproof and in inverted commas vests. They could be sent out, all kinds of kit. And soldiers asked often for specific things. And on the battlefields, you find a lot of glass objects jars of preservatives of sauces like hendo sauce from sheffield hp sauce camp coffee and all this kind of stuff that could be sent through the post as well so the soldiers could supplement their rations robert graves called the public schools battalion of the royal fusiliers the chocolate soldiers because when their post arrived it contained bars of chocolates whereas the tough regulars in his royal welsh fusilier battalion they received from their families bottles of strong liquor. That was the kind of difference between the sets of troops reflected in their post. And 
Some years ago, a friend lent me a whole set of letters from an officer in the King's Royal Rifle Corps. And in those, most of the letters were to his family asking for things. And he was asking for just about anything you could think of. Camp beds, chairs, inflatable cushions, writing desks. And all of this stuff would then be packaged up, taken to the GPO, and then sent through the army postal system from the people at home who were obviously paying for that to him in the trenches. And it also meant that officers could order things from the trenches. So officers could order trench periscopes, or they could order, in the case of Billy Neville of the 8th East Surreys, footballs to be sent out. And they could contact stores like Fortnum and Masons and Gamages in London and have just about anything that you could think of sent through the post to them in the trenches. So just about anything could be sent one way and another. And going back the other way from active service back home, soldiers could send parcels too. Now that was restricted to a degree because you weren't going to be able to put a pickle halber in a box and send it back to your mum or the fuse of a shell or a clip of German ammunition or whatever it was. Sending that kind of stuff was much more problematic. Although for officers, and this is a sad aspect of it, when they were killed because the kit was their private possessions, not the possession of the war office, so the uniform and the Sam Brown and the sidearm and all kinds of other things belonged to the officer and therefore the officer's next of kin. That had to be all parceled up and then sent home. Uh, the officers had what was called a flea bag, which was a kind of sleeping bag that could also be used to carry their kit. And I've seen examples of those for dead officers where everything has been pushed inside, closed up, sealed up and then sent back to the family. And in terms of casualties, if letters were sent to men on the front line and they had been killed in action or were missing, those letters were then sent back by that army postal system with that stamped on them. And you imagine receiving a letter back that you'd sent a few days before where it's stamped across the name of your loved one, killed in action or missing. I mean, that's pretty brutal, really. And I've got some examples of these and it's quite sad to hold them in your hands and think the effect of just that one little envelope coming back with that stamped on it. Now, it's over a century since the Great War, and the last of the mail has long since been delivered, as it were, but the kind of echoes of the mail occasionally do return. Mathilde Bernadette, who's a French historian who we've interviewed on this podcast before, she used to work at the Lens 14 des Huit, the Lens 1418 Museum, in northern France. She was contacted during the kind of lockdown period during Covid when a Frenchman had bought a house in Neuilly-le-Mines, a village just behind the British front line on the Luz battlefields in northern France and he'd lifted some of the floorboards and he'd found some English letters in there or letters that were in English and he'd brought them for her to translate and they were from a soldier who'd been billeted there, had read these letters from home, received these letters from home possibly didn't want to take him into the trenches in case he lost them, so he stashed them under the floorboards thinking he was going to come back to that billet in Nui Lamines to retrieve them, but he never did, and he went on to be killed at the Battle of Arras in April 1917. He's buried in Tilloy Cemetery, just east of Arras, and uh, that story made it into the press at that time and, and even onto the television and radio, I seem to think. But it kind of shows that those fragments of a soldier's life, those important letters, 
they are still out there and they do still turn up and and in the brocants the kind of flea markets and car boot sales when i lived in france occasionally things like that would turn up so again it's another example of the pages of the great war never finally ever finally being turned so we've looked at the kind of type of post and censorship what about post on other fronts aside from the western front We'll end with a a kind of brief look at posts from other fronts of the Great War. Many of these are subjects in their own rights, particularly with things like Gallipoli and Salonika and Palestine. But it's important to understand that the Great War was not just fought on the Western Front. And even by 1915, British and Commonwealth forces were all over the Empire and also at new theatres of war at places like Gallipoli and Salonika. They were at sea from the very beginning with the Royal Navy, of course, and later in the war they were in places like Italy, Mesopotamia, Palestine and Russia, and, of course, Africa as well. This was a world war. Post was still sent via London to these other theatres of war, but the whole shipping network of the empire was then used to move the post to and from the battlefield because obviously the distances out to Africa or Mesopotamia or where it was were considerably greater than sending it via London to Folkestone and then Folkestone to Boulogne and onwards to northern France. At Gallipoli, which was the kind of first big challenge for the postal service overseas, Post came in through the Aegean Sea, probably, I think, via Egypt originally, and then sent across the Aegean Sea to post offices at Lemnos and Mudros, and then on to the Gallipoli Peninsula itself. Field post offices were then located at Gallipoli, on the battlefield, at Cape Hellas, at Anzac and Suvla. And I have a, a little envelope to an officer in the Cheshire Regiment that I picked up in a junk shop in Chester many years ago, and I went into the Cheshire Regiment Museum and showed them this envelope because they had the name of an officer. And they kind of looked up some details. And then they said, oh, that post office is the Suvla Bay Post Office. It's quite a rare one. So a kind of similar structure of a postal service was put in place there, even that little toehold at Gallipoli where the British and Commonwealth forces were in 1915. And kind of looking at a little bit about this, A landing post office was established at Anzac by the Australian Imperial Force and the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, for example, Anzac being the Australian and New Zealand sector at Gallipoli in 1915, and that was manned by both the Australian and New Zealand postal services. But post at Gallipoli, the whole mail receiving and delivering there were frustrated through losses at sea because it had to be shipped via sea to get there and then had to be taken away and shipped by sea to get back home. Ships were sunk. There was a lot of naval action. There was a lot of U-boat and submarine action in the Aegean Sea. And just to give one example of over 500 bags of mail that were dispatched from Anzac, Anzac Cove in November 1915, for example, over 150 of those were lost at sea. So Gallipoli proved very frustrating and challenging for that army postal system. In Egypt, those who were on the Suez Canal and later in the Palestine campaign, officially they were part of the EEF, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, 
they had their mail move through existing routes across the Mediterranean from Britain to Egypt, with the EEF later on as the campaign in Palestine progressed, using places like Port Said and Kantara to receive the post before it was shipped up to units out in the desert. A whole kind of new experience for the Royal Engineers postal section with things like that. And in Russia, when troops were sent there towards the end of 1918, as part of a Russian expeditionary force to support the white Russians who were still loyal to the Tsar to fight the Bolsheviks, post offices were set up at Archangel and Mamance, shipping routes, the old coal shipping routes from the 19th century across the Baltic, for example, to, to get to those. They were used to send mail to the troops there and receive mail and send it back to Britain. But the delay between posting a letter and receiving them in these theatres of war was obviously much greater because of the huge distances often involved. But the regularity of post was probably even more important because of this distance. And for example, when we kind of look at the Gallipoli campaign, the huge volume of letters that were sent by soldiers at Gallipoli and received by soldiers at Gallipoli kind of give us an, an insight into the importance uh, of that for British soldiers who were there, for Australians and New Zealanders and Indians and all the other nationalities that served at Gallipoli in 1915. Just like the soldiers of that conflict, the post really weaves its way through all of these pathways of the Great War. For me, that's part of its fascination. The men involved in delivering and collecting the post were themselves not immune to the realities of the battlefield, and some became casualties. There was no official rank of post-corporal, you won't see that on a headstone, but I do often wonder as I walk round the silent cities of the Great War how many Great War trench posties graves I've walked by over the years. They're kind of the, the silent heroes of the Great War, men who enabled that vital link from home to exist on the battlefield. And I remember Great War veteran Albert Banfield, who served with the 13th Royal Sussex, describing how one of their post-corporals was bringing out letters at Ypres in some sandbags when they moved up there after the Somme, and the mail was in these two sandbags that he was carrying. He knew how important it was for the men in the front line to receive these letters from home. He was very anxious to get it up to them, and the trenches were really muddy during that winter of 1916-17 and very difficult to traverse. So he decided to go up above the trenches and move across open ground to get up towards the forward positions in the kind of semi-darkness, but got killed by a stray shell. And the sandbags he was carrying got blown to smithereens and the letters got scattered all over the shell holes and the mud and the muck and the slime and the post was lost along with their post-corporal. The post that linked that generation to home and to family and all that they loved, the billions of letters that passed to and from the trenches, often give voice to the experience of war, the human fears that those soldiers had and the frailty, really, in many respects, of being so far away from the home and, and the life that they'd known in what was often, to them, an alien landscape. You think of the Western Front, you think of Gallipoli and Mesopotamia, places that they'd only kind of read about in books, and there they were, serving there, and the letters were the link to the real world that they'd once known, the old world. And there are many 
many collections of these letters put into print. There are so many books of them. Michael Moynihan, back in the 1980s, wrote several books of letters from the First World War from the collections that are in the Imperial War Museum. And if this is something that interests you, it's really worth seeking those out. But the words that were written in those letters, the posts that were sent, those tactile paper sheets, really forever bond us to those years of war, bond us to those men who held them in their hands and in many cases kept them. Ted Davis, this collection of letters sitting alongside me now of his service in the London Irish Rifles, he kept the whole lot and he wrote annotations on them. It meant so much to him. And those little scraps of paper received in the midst of battle as shot and shell went off around them. This was not just the correspondence they'd once had with family of old and those they loved and cared for and cherished, the very reason, perhaps, that they were fighting. It was much more than that. They, many of them, they kept these letters because they too linked them to the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash